Hello listeners, this is Tosha. Before we start this episode on physician-assisted suicide, we felt it was important to mention a few things first. The conversation with our guest was surprising and extremely complex. There is so much said in our conversation that we wanted to share with you all, and also so much that was left unsaid. Still, after discussing with our team, including conferring with KUCR station management and our campus compliance officer, we ultimately decided to share this episode with a few select edits, which we rarely do. In our effort to explore the controversial and complex discussions in our field, it can be difficult to balance potentially triggering material, everyone's differing opinions on the subject, and the responsibility of educating in a public space. We hope our conversations stimulate your own dialogue with these topics and you ask yourself where you stand on these issues. We recognize that the subject matter of suicide can be triggering. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, help and support is available. One of the messages we want to communicate today is that the intense thoughts and feelings a person experiences that leads to thoughts of suicide can be successfully treated. If you feel backed into a corner, seek help. Even if past help hasn't worked for you, how you feel could change quickly. There's a way forward for you. And with the right help, you can get to living your best life. Life experiences are out there that you haven't had yet. And there are people in this world who need you, even if you haven't met them yet. If you're a UCR student seeking help, please call UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services at 951-827-5531. And for anyone out there who's having thoughts of suicide, call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Get connected with the help you need or help a friend or family member connect with the help and support they deserve. And now here's our show. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about assisted suicide and whether this should be an easier process and all, and just the different kind of um, issues involved. And to do that, we're honored to have as a guest, Dr. Philip Nitschke. Dr. Nitschke is an Australian author, former physician, and founder and director of the pro-euthanasia group Exit International. He campaigned successfully to have a legal euthanasia law passed in Australia and assisted four people in ending their lives before the law was overturned. Dr. Nitschke was the first doctor in the world to administer a legal, voluntary lethal injection, after which patient activated the syringe using a computer. Philip is the inventor of the Sarcopod, a 3D-printed euthanasia machine. Dr. Nitschke, thank you for joining us from Normandy, France. Yes, well, thank you. I'm glad to join you. I thought we'd kind of focus a little bit uh, first on your background. You're a doctor, how you came to this idea of, and some people think, look at it and think of it as democratizing a, a suicide or assisted suicide. How did you get to this point? Can you tell me a little, little bit about your background? And then also you founded the organization Exit International. Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. I mean, my views have changed a lot over the years, or I can give you a little bit of a summary of what happened. 
Uh, look, I went, uh, my background is really in, in physics, uh, but I went back and did medicine kind of late in life because I was a bit fascinated by it and I had an opportunity to do it. So I went back and did medicine when I was in my 30s at Sydney, went down to Sydney University uh, and uh, after that went back to my home in the Northern Territory, which is one of the more remote parts of Australia, which is where I spent most of my life. And I was back there doing my early stages of medical training, first in a hospital, mostly in a hospital setting, what they call resident medical services there, predominantly involved with if I was to do anything in the form of a, an area of interest, I was spending most of my time in drug rehabilitation and those issues. But I was basically doing general medicine. And uh, it was in that situation when uh, I heard one day almost on the radio that there was to be the introduction of a new law. There was a hope by the leader of the government of the Northern Territory of Australia to introduce new legislation which would allow a person to get help from a doctor to die if they satisfied some pretty strict conditions. I heard about it on the radio. As I said, I hadn't had much to do with uh, people who were dying, mm. although I had a lot to do with people who were trying to get, to get themselves into that state. But, I mean, basically I wasn't dealing with elderly people or people who were dying from serious illness. On the other hand, I had pretty clear views about what I thought would be a reasonable uh, approach to this issue. I knew damn well what I would want if I was seriously ill. So I thought, good idea, rolled over and went back to sleep. And it was only in the next week when I realised there was such opposition that this announcement unleashed that I was totally taken aback. I wasn't surprised perhaps by the opposition from the church. That was perhaps predictable. But the thing that really annoyed and upset me was the total... Uh, pushback from my new profession, that is the medical so the medical profession in Australia and the Australian Medical Association came out very strongly, almost within the next day or two, saying that law is never going to pass. And if it did, we will make sure that such a law never is, never is implemented. I was taken aback by that. Uh, first of all, I thought, I was wondering why they felt so strongly about it, because that wasn't my personal view. I thought it was basically a good idea. Most of the people in the rather sparse, sparsely populated Northern Territory of Australia thought it was a good idea too. It was popular with the people, but very unpopular with elements within the uh, Christian church and also now I was finding within the medical profession. And then the various colleges of medicine came out making their various statements from around other parts of Australia. We're looking at the Northern Territory. It was some sort of cot case and in need of some sort of uh, correction so that it could start thinking in the right way. The Northern Territories often be thought of as a little bit a bit wayward, where uh, where people go and uh, where rather more unorthodox things happen because it's rather small and remote and no one knows what's going on up there. But there was a general <laughs> feeling from the rest of Australia that they were overstepping the mark a bit here. And it was the national body uh, of the medical profession that came out very strongly with these statements saying that there would not be a in fact, the one that really annoyed me was the one that came out within a few days saying there would not be a doctor in the Northern Territory who would support such legislation. And so without doctors, it's not going to work, so you might as well save your time trying to pass such a law. I was really annoyed by that. Uh, and uh, I, I, I started to uh, lobby about it. I started to sort out my uh, positions of my other fellow medical practitioners, and I found, indeed, there was a lot of opposition, but there was, it wasn't total. And this idea that there wouldn't be a doctor in the Territory was just wrong, so I ran around and managed to find out of the 700-odd doctors in the Territory, not a lot, I managed to find 20 who would come out and take out a full-page ad in the local Darwin paper. 
saying that, well, that's not quite true, because that, that argument that uh, the medical profession was totally hostile to it was starting to have an effect, because whereas people were perhaps not surprised about the church, people who had thought it was a good idea were now having to listen to on a daily basis eminent members of the profession saying, look, this is a really bad idea and we know what's best for you. Uh, that idea that we you, you don't know enough about it, but we're the, we're the people who are knowledgeable about this issue and the profession itself thinks it's a mistake and we shouldn't go down this path. And that was having an impact. People say, oh, well, I guess doctors know, what, know what's best for us. And there was a sort of a grudging feeling, of, well, maybe they know something that we don't know, even though the general public felt that it was quite a good idea. Do you, do you think that the, the, part of it is about defensiveness, about the role of physician? I, I know that you, uh, it, it's at, at least it's said on, on the internet, um, which is also reliable, that you yeah. at, at one point burned your, your medical degree, it sounds like in protest to some of this yeah, that stuff. Took, uh, that, that, took another, that took almost another 20 years till I got to the position of burning it. I mean, I spent a long time trying to work out how I could fit comfortably into my new profession, which I quite liked, I must say. I enjoyed being a doctor. Uh, and I wanted to see that there should be some way that this issue could be resolved. And it wasn't for another 20 years till I finally got to the point where the medical uh, profession in Australia decided that they didn't want me. And by that stage, I certainly didn't want them. <laughs> so it looked, it looked like a, a very sensible choice to set fire to and burn the medical registration ahead overseas to a to a country where I could find such ideas and the, the, the ideas about this issue discussed in a much more open-minded way. And that's why I effectively now live, I'm a permanent resident here in, in Holland now, I'm in France today, but I'm, I live in Holland. Now, the fact that you have that medical background, and I think you said you practice geriatric medicine, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on, you know, balancing the medical ethics of beneficence and non-maleficence in regards to this issue? Well, I mean, I as as I said, I didn't have any. I didn't know. I hadn't hadn't had a lot of practice in in geriatric medicine. In fact, I hadn't oh, had much sorry. Elderly people. But uh, no, this idea. It, look, it was it was simply stated like this: that if you, the, the law was coming along saying that if you're a terminally ill patient, you should be able to get lawful help from a doctor to die. It was as simple as that. You had to satisfy a few criteria. You had to be of sound mind, mental capacity, and the like, uh, and you had to be a person who was terminally ill. And they set out to try and define that in a rather strange way basically what basically said you've got to be expected to be dead by two doctors within six months that means that was their definition of terminal illness and if you satisfied that and a few other criteria that is you had to uh had to make your uh, your intentions known and you had to be checked by effectively it worked out to be four doctors in the end it was rather onerous process then if you satisfied this had your four signatures on a piece of paper one of those doctors could give you either the drugs to end your life or provide you with a lethal injection now, I looked at that piece of legislation and thought, well, if I satisfied those criteria as a, as a patient, I would certainly want that option. I could see nothing wrong with the idea. Now, and I indicated earlier when we were talking that most people, that is the general public, thought it was a good idea too. Now, the opposition that was coming out from the medical profession well, I had a whole heap of reasons why they didn't want to be uh, be involved. Uh, none of them, I thought, were particularly cogent arguments, but they were being put forward. There was the idea that people were going to be... Like, I don't want to even try and give uh, an analysis of the medical profession's opposition, but I found myself having to argue against it all the time. I mean, the arguments, I don't think, hold much water at all. People come up with all sorts of reasons why the medical profession shouldn't be involved. And I noticed with some interest that over the next 20 years, We've seen the evolution of that idea to the point, rather grudgingly, 
it seems to me, but nevertheless, it's changed. The medical profession has come to, to, to co coexist with this idea quite comfortably, and we've seen legislation very similar to that law that passed in Darwin back in 1996, 25 years ago, existing around the world. I mean, in fact, in the, in the US, as you would know, Oregon brought in its legislation the next year, uh, the, a year after our short-lived law in 1996 was overturned. So Oregon came in in 1998, and then there's been, of course, Washington State, uh, and there's been other states now, and California, of course, where you, where people are now, and and uh, then of course it's spread around the world, numbers of places, and finally. Australia is even emerging from the dark ages. It went back into the dark ages by overturning that embryonic law after only eight months. So it existed only for eight months, but it was the world's first. And it gave me the option of providing a legal lethal injection to my terminally ill patients. So, so Philip, this, this work that you've done, um, for me at least, it's been one of the most confusing issues I've ever faced as a physician, but also as a human. And I I've changed my mind on it several times and I, I still don't know, totally know where I stand. Um, I, I would like to hear you talk a little bit about some of the medical counter arguments and which ones you think did hold some weight for you. And, and were you ever confused? I mean, you know, you have fought so, um, sort of doggedly for this and really been an influencer on the world's state of affairs on this. What brought you to a point where you felt that strongly about it and what confusion, I know you said you've changed your opinions along the way. I'd love to hear about those kind of human complexities. Yes. Well, my, my opinion started off very much wedded to this idea of the medical model. That is if you're sick enough, uh, satisfy all sorts of strict criteria and can demonstrate the fact to several, usually several doctors, that you are you are suffering enough to warrant their involvement. Then they will be able to provide you with the means, on perhaps uh, in more than the, either is in the form of a drug you can take orally or provide you with a lethal injection. That's the medical model, and I I started off in total agreement with that idea. It seemed to me that if you were suffering and you were dying. It was unreasonable to go along and say, look, I really want to put an end to this suffering and have the medical professional, the doctor, you are say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can do everything else. And of course, I was also watching what I thought was the hypocrisy of what I would describe as slow euthanasia, where, well, I can, I can, we can deal with your pain and we'll just give you a little bit more of this and a little bit more of this and a little bit more of this. We'll wait and say, oh, that didn't work. So we'll try again and we'll try again. And that titration slowly building up the substance until you drop dead and then arguing that that's got nothing to do with me because all I was always doing as a doctor was treating the pain. Well, I saw that as total hypocrisy. Uh, and I thought, well, why don't we just give the drug and have the person die? And then everyone would get what they wanted, perhaps. And this was a sophist the sophistry that was going on under the established practices was upsetting to me. But nevertheless, I accepted the idea that and I thought the law was a good one because it allowed uh, a person to bring an end to that uh, charade. And when they did want help to die, receive the help that they needed. Now, the evolution in ideas that I've mentioned really started after that. Uh, that idea of being supportive of the medical model, I mean, I mean, there are, it's, it's getting hard to find people who don't support the medical model these days. It's very, I mean, it's very, not too many people around here say that you shouldn't get help from a doctor to die if you're terminally ill. But in the early days and back in 1996, as I said, I seem to be something of an exception. And uh, 
Well, as I said, we managed to get a few doctors to take out a full page ad, but it was pretty, uh, pretty unusual and there was a lot of opposition from within the profession. The law only lasted for eight months and the federal government of Australia overturned it. They thought the territory was, uh, uh, was overstepping the mark uh, and it needed to be reeled in and they used their federal powers to bring that law to a close. Uh, and it, uh, in those eight months, only, I could only really assist four, pay, four people who were who were terminally ill to die. And by, by that time, by those, by that time that you were assisting people, had you already kind of um, reached your final evolution in your viewpoint? No. Had you already had your opinion changes by then? No, not at all. I all, all in that period of helping people to die. I I, I started off be, believing that it was reasonable for a doctor to help, and I ended that time thinking it was re- reasonable for a doctor to help, and very annoyed that the government of Australia decided that the law shouldn't uh, shouldn't be in place. Uh, needless to say, the Australian Medical Association were euphoric when the law was overturned because it had got rid of this thing that they were particularly troubled by, and I was very upset by that fact. Nevertheless, um, I believe that that was an, a, a reasonable approach, and I wasn't too surprised uh, to hear about Oregon's success a year later with the passage of very similar legislation. Uh, and then the other states that have followed. And I watched the arguments take uh, take place in the Netherlands, where I now live, and they brought in their law in 2001. So, I mean, I've been watching the changes around the world, but what's happened to me in that period since that time was with the overturning of the Australian law, people kept coming to see me and saying, look, I want help to die. And I'm saying, well, I can't. Now the law's disappeared and gone. And they say, but there must be something you can do. Tell me about the drugs. Tell me what I can do. And so this question came up, how can you give people the information they need so that they can do it themselves, working on the principle that doing it yourself, that is suicide, is not a crime. In most places, suicide is not a crime. So if you can give people information so they can take this step successfully, it seemed to me that got around a bit of some of the problem, at least, uh, of breaking what seemed to be very savage laws which prevent assistance to suicide. Now, that was going along okay. I set up Exit International. We started uh, giving people access and information. Basically, it was a matter of knowledge. People just didn't know what they were doing, which was why there were so many uh, difficult situations. People needed good information. But my, uh, if you like, uh, road to Damascus uh, uh, conversion came and when I started to really shift my position when I met one particular person, not a patient, a person who just came to one of my meetings, I was running meetings all over Australia by this stage, telling people what their options were. Uh, and she came to me and said, I want to die in four years time. Uh, she was 76. Uh, and I said, oh, and she said, I want some information about what drugs I can take to, to end my life. And I said, oh, yes, uh, what, four years time, what's wrong with you? And she said, well, nothing's wrong with me. She said, but I'm 76 and 80 is the time to die. And I thought she was, uh, well, I was a bit perplexed by this statement. I didn't believe her. People say all sorts of strange things. I didn't take a lot of notice. Every time I went back to where she lived, which is Perth in Western Australia, I'd hold a meeting there a couple of times a year. She'd be there. Then she said, hurry up and answer my questions. It was three years and it was two years. She said, I've only got a year to go. And I said, for goodness sake, she was a retired French academic at the University of Western Australia. Lisette Nigo was her name. And I said, for goodness sake, Lisette, you're not sick. You're well. Why don't you write a book? Why don't you go on a world cruise? And she said, why don't you mind your own business? She said, this has got nothing to do with you, doctor. She said, uh, all as I want from you is technical information about drugs. And she said, trouble with you is you run around Australia talking to people, and, and if you think they satisfy your criteria, 
you dole out the information to them that they want. So you set yourself up as some sort of judge and jury, hand out information to people who satisfy your criteria. What gives you the right? You went off and trained in one thing. I went off and trained in another thing. You have got information and I want it. And why can't you give it to me? You're the worst example of medical paternalism. So I was mortified by those insults and uh, felt suitably chastened by her uh, forthright opinion. And, uh, and I felt that she's right. I mean, I've got no, why should I hold this information? I've got information. What gives me the right to dole it out to people who satisfy, she pointed out, my criteria, not hers, mine. Listeners, you're, uh, you're listening to uh, Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking to Dr. Philip Nitschke, uh, the founder of Exit International and uh, developer of the Sarko um, Suicide Pod. Go ahead, Alan. So we as psychiatrists, we have our own feelings about this stuff because democratizing in some ways could, could make a lot of sense. But in other ways, when you democratize, you risk the information getting into the hands of people who maybe are being impulsive. How do you, I'm sure you've thought about that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, of course, uh, it could get into the wrong hands. Uh, but that, that very argument is used as a reason why no information goes anywhere. Uh, and of course, it also begs the question: Is why why is it why is it that my possession of that information is in the right hands? Uh, what gives me this uh, this authority to have access to this information? Why? Because I went and did a few years at university. I mean, uh, I, this this whole idea that we can somehow rather decide who should get access to information uh, annoys me. And uh, and it certainly as it certainly annoyed Lisette when she said. And when she accused me of such paternalism, what gives you the right? She said, it could have been me that studied medicine and you would have been sitting here saying, tell me about the drugs. I want to know about the drugs. And I would have decided to dole that information out to you. So this, this, uh, this uh, argument has, I found quite a powerful one. Uh, and uh, I started, and she said it's a, and she said it to me, and I now believe it too, that ending your life is a little bit more than some privilege for the very sick that's uh, decided upon by some panel of uh, experts. That ending your own life is a fundamental human right. That if you've got this precious God-given uh, uh, gift of life, it's it's got you've got to have the ability to dispose of it if and when you want. And that's fundamental. Now, that, of course, means that for whatever reason, and one of the reasons may be, and the reasons may be ones that we don't, uh, most of us think are a little strange, like her reason was, well, 80 is the time to die. Is that a reasonable reason for saying to end your life? The question was, was she uh, mentally deranged in some way? Did she have mental capacity? Well, it seemed to me she did. She knew exactly what she wanted. What she wanted, though, from me was technical information. And I was sitting around like some running around, setting myself up as a person who can better judge who should have this information who haven't. And then that argument, as you just brought up then, is then used as a reason why no one gets the information except the privileged few. So I've had this information for a long time. I've got my own end of life drugs in the cupboard uh, and I can sit there with some comfort knowing they're there. But I know a hell of a lot of 80 year olds who would do a lot to have this, be in the same position. They want those drugs. They can see no reason why they shouldn't have them. And they can have seen no reason why they should have to run around and beg and grovel or effectively under new legislation, wait till they're damn near dead before they can qualify and then have someone check their position. So, so it makes sense that you as a, a former physician and the head, an activist for this cause are fighting to democratize that information. But do you see 
giving that information out to people who, I mean, we, as doctors, we're, we're often very comfortable with paternalism when we see the issue is more important than autonomy. Um, do you see that the, do you think the role of doctors should, should include the democratization of this information? I don't know if that's your role as doctors. In fact, I, I, I somehow doubt that that is a role of, of the medical profession. Uh, but I do want the pro. In fact, uh, you've probably also read that my my belief is that we should be demedicalizing death. Uh, that death and dying are not necessarily medical processes and should not necessarily involve the medical profession at all. You might spend a lot of time with doctors leading up to that point, but the actual act of dying is not a medical process. So this idea of demedicalizing the process. What's happened, it seems to me, is that the medical profession has set itself up as the experts and gatekeepers to this process, and now in some ways they're paying a price for that to the point that they've convinced the rest of the public that you can't actually die unless you have someone sitting there with a white coat in the room, and so people feel obliged to somehow or other involve the profession in this final decision, and that I find a little bit worrying, and I've got an awful lot of people who join my organisation who say exactly the same thing. They don't see any role for medicine, and they want the decision, they certainly don't want to have to go around and beg permission. They even be I call these new laws that have come in, I might add, such as the ones you now have in places like California, beg and grovel laws. People say they give you the right to die. No, they give you the right to ask the question. The right is determined by the people who adjudicate on that decision, and that is predominantly and usually, same here in the Netherlands, a panel of doctors. And so effectively, these beg and grovel laws I find, are not the ones that I think are the other way forward. And that's what ultimately led to my uh, serious uh, difficulty with the medical profession in Australia, where they decided I was a risk to the Australian public with these views. They used their emergency powers to deregister me. I took them through the courts. It took, an, it took ages, cost a fortune. I won the case, got my medical registration back again because it seemed I'd exceeded their powers. Dr. Nitschke, um it, it seems like you have like a really extreme libertarian view that, that you know, this information should be out there. Anyone should access the, are there any limits to who should have this information, how easy it should be available to anybody? I mean, we're talking about minors, uh, you know. Well, I mean, when you say extreme, I don't think it's all that extreme, but I do have some conditions. I've got the same conditions as I have in Switzerland. You've got to be an adult. You've got to know about the permanence of death. So at some point, we say there's an age at which you know about the permanence of death. And for convenience, we say an adult can do this and perhaps a child can't. So, OK, you've got to be an adult. And the other one, which, of course, is the VEX criteria, which is, of course, is a lot more difficult, is the issue about mental capacity. You've got to have mental capacity. So you've got to know what you're doing. Now, I meet a lot of people who know what they're doing, that is, have mental capacity, and want to take their lives, in other words, end their, end their time on this planet. Uh, and they want to do it sometimes for reasons which are not associated with sickness and suffering, and we see a lot of this. And these are what we would describe as social reasons for wanting to die, a little bit like Lisette. Her social reason was, I want to die because I'm 80 years old. But we see a lot of people now, and I, I'm in the situation now where people come in to, uh, to get help to die in Switzerland, which I'm involved in there. And they come in for a lot of different reasons, and a lot of them are not medical reasons, because if they were medical reasons, that is, if the person was uh, terminally ill, suffering and nearly dead, they would probably be able to get help from California, for example, under the existing legislation there. And even people come from Holland, uh, where I live, to Switzerland, where I often work, uh, because they, they 
appreciate the fact that the Swiss have not gone down this path of setting up what we would describe medicalized laws. And so you can come in as a couple where one person is sick and one person is a partner for a long time of the person who is sick, who is not sick, and end your lives together in Switzerland. You can't do that in the Netherlands, and you certainly can't do that in California. Well, I mean, as you make this information more readily available and, 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 you know, really kind of leave it to the person themselves to make that choice, you know, it seems like it's it's going to spread and it's go- and people are going to uh, be committing suicide and killing themselves. And there's not going to be a lot of regulation or hurdles. You're talking about things like, you know, competency and things like that. But, you know, what do you, what do you say about the research that, you know, about 90%, I looked at, you know, several studies, about 90% of people that attempt suicide regret it, and then they don't end up killing themselves. And so it, because it was a temporary crisis. Well, uh, look, I'm, I, we, we don't, it, look, it's a vexed issue. I mean, I, I'm saying that that argument that there will be people who, who uh, change their mind and uh, are reasons that have taken this step uh, when they don't fully appreciate the implications of their planned act because they do lack mental capacity, that there will be people like that and this will be a tragedy. Of course it will be a tragedy. Everyone agrees with that. So you try to make sure that those people don't take that step. But to use that as an argument why no one should get this information, that's the step too far that I find myself constantly having to argue about. People say, well, no one should have this information. To which I say, but I've got the information. What gives me this right to run around? I've got it. I'm in a great position. It's, It's worth noting that in our country, guns are very legal. Yeah. And so if you're going to, I mean, we're, we're basically just arguing about a more compassionate means of death rather than democratizing a means of death. I, I, I think that's, you know, that's there. Well, I was just thinking like, so you've got these two extremes that you laid out. You're like, everyone can have the information and they should make their own decision or no one should have the information, but then there should be some regulation. So how, what is that regulation? Like what, what, what is, what is in place? I, th- I think, well, I don't know. I think, the, I think the model that the Swiss employ is quite a good one. Uh, they've got the con- criteria that I mentioned. Uh, you've got to be of sound mind, and that usually requires some form of medical assessment. Uh, and you've got to be a person who's an adult. That doesn't take much to establish. So you've got these two criteria which you need to satisfy in Switzerland. I think that works quite well. Okay, so medical assessment being like a um, like a psychologist or a, med- a mental health professional or just a regular physical, like a primary care physician? It depends a lot. Uh, we have people coming in from all over the world and uh, people people who have, uh, where well, we have a look at medical histories and people that have got uh, strong background histories of psychiatric illness invariably find themselves being reviewed by uh, Swiss psychiatrists. Uh, but generally speaking, if you've got nothing about your medical history, Uh, which suggests anything other than the fact that you're just a normal type person who now wishes to die. Uh, It's usually done by a general generalist in Switzerland who is also because the only method that we use now is the provision of pentobarbital as an injection or as an oral, as an oral medication. So that has to be prescribed. And that that leads on to why we've developed the SARCO to try and get around this particular issue. So I'm trying to demedicalize the process, but it's very hard in Switzerland even because someone has to prescribe these controlled substances and uh, and that requires the involvement of the medical profession. Well, I have a question for you because we've talked about how your medical practice has informed, you know, your thoughts about this. Can I ask you about your religious background or spiritual background? How has that informed your views? 
Well, I don't know where it. I don't remember. I suppose I don't think it's informed my views. I've been an atheist for most of my life. I think probably for as long as I can recall. I don't believe there is much, uh, very any very compelling arguments for adopting any of the religious beliefs that I've I've been involved in and had a look at. Um, so I feel quite comfortable about my atheism. I did notice, though, as I indicated earlier, that this one of the strongest pieces of opposition to the implementation of these laws, which are now sweeping the planet, I might. It's not going to be very long, I don't, I'm predicting this, around before we have these heavily medicalized laws in most countries around the world. Uh, and they'll be universal, I think. So, I mean, the church was the strongest opposition to that. Uh, and so I didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate the way that they were using arguments, such as the fact that your life is a precious gift from God. I didn't mind a bit about it being a precious gift. It was a question about it coming from God that annoyed me a bit. And this idea that you have uh, no right to give this precious gift away, that this decision was only going to be taken by some supreme authority, which you had no control over. This idea that you've got this precious gift, yes, I accept that, but you've saw a gift that you cannot give away is not a gift. A gift you cannot give away is an onerous chore, a burden. And, uh, and I just... Uh, didn't uh, didn't mean much to me. So look, I I, I sort of watch the uh, the way the various religious uh, groups um, interact with this issue, um, and it is true that a lot of the people that we have as our members of Ex International around the world, as lots of members all over the place, tend to be people who don't have strong religious convictions. But that's a it's a it's a trend. It's certainly not a universal thing. We got some extremely religious people. Uh, who believe strongly in their religion, clearly, and I presume strongly believe that life is a precious gift from God, but nevertheless don't seem to have any difficulty when it comes to the issue of whether or not they should end their life of taking that step. That's so interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How do they contend with this? Well, I, mean, I wouldn't be doing them justice to try and argue because I don't have that problem myself. I mean, I mm -hmm. watch them and I don't, I mean, apart from talking about this myself, I mean, I do ask people, obviously, what, what is your thoughts about this? And sometimes they volunteer information. I don't I feel really in a position to come along and, uh, and challenge their beliefs. Uh, I notice, though, that some people are comfortable. Some people indicate that they have got difficulty with families because other family members hold uh, perhaps stronger views or perhaps uh, views of, of, of different faiths and find this a very difficult topic for them to explain to other family members. So it causes trouble at times with in-family settings. Um, but uh, how people actually reconcile this, I don't know. I mean, I, as I said, I don't have any trouble reconciling it with my atheism at all. And I and I noticed that some people have a little trouble with their with their religion. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about assisted suicide and the process uh, with our special guest, Dr. Philip Nitschke. Dr. Nitschke, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Oh, thank you. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you or someone you know are having thoughts of suicide, help and support is available. One of the messages we want to communicate today is that the intense thoughts and feelings of personal experiences that leads to thoughts of suicide can be successfully treated. You can learn to live a life that brings you joy and satisfaction. If you're a student seeking help, please call UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services at 951-827-5531. For anyone out there, you can also call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Get connected, get connected with the help you need or the help uh, for a friend or family member that, that might need help with suicidal thoughts. 
And thank you also uh, to uh, our producer, Elliot Fong, and our production assistant, uh, Benjamin Metrican. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.